0: Welcome into episode 94 of the House of Elf podcast. So funny. I was talking with someone the other day about how many episodes there were, and this person was like, are there enough media people for you to talk to to keep this thing going? And I said, yeah, I think so. I think that we can still find interesting people with interesting stories, and there are definitely some people that I want to have back on. Obviously, Jason Goff was already back on. He's the first repeat on the House of L podcast, but there are a couple other people uh, like Barry Rosner. I'd love to chat with uh, Uncle Barry again and and see what he's got going on on his mind. But this week is not that. This week is a new guest, and I couldn't be happier about this episode. Adam Amin is one of the best play-by-play guys in the country. He's unbelievable. The, The work that he does on television, on radio, You give him a sport, he can do it. You want to do softball, he's got you covered. You want to do a hot dog eating contest, he's got you covered. You want to do NFL, got you covered. NBA, got you covered. Women's NCAA tournament buzzer beaters to win title games, he's got you covered. This guy is a, a testament to hard work and someone who clearly cares about his craft And he's someone that he's been on the hit list. Like he's one of those people that I was dying to get on the podcast because I think he's so good at what he does and being able to pick his brain for an hour to find out how to do the job the, the right way was pretty special. I also genuinely like him. Like he's one of those people in our business that I think is tremendous. I have a lot of respect for the way that he goes about doing his job. He said some very nice things about me that I, I'm not sure I deserve, but I take them uh, with the compliment that, that was given. And we just vibe, man. Me and him just really, really vibe. I think that you'll enjoy this episode. And because we talk about the business a lot, but we also get into some, some bigger conversations. His family's immigrant story from Pakistan is really phenomenal. And the fact that he's been able to make it in this business is is pretty great, too. So I want, want you to listen to his story. I want you to listen to a guy that understands how to do the job of play-by-play so well. And a, and a guy with a tremendous personality. I say it all the time on a bunch of these episodes, but if you already like Adam Amin, you're going to love him. And if you don't know anything about Adam Amin, you're also going to love him after you finish this episode. So, he and I got together. We sat in a small room. We talked about a whole bunch of stuff. Episode 94, Adam Amin, House of L Podcast. Man, first of all, I want to thank you for, for doing the pot to tell you the truth. No, man. This is awesome. Man. I'm a huge fan of yours, and you know that. so well, vice versa.
1: man I oh. just, I, any, anything for you, man, I, I, I love coming down and talking to you. and you, you, this is the medium I like listening to you the most. Really. I, I, I love hearing you talk sports, obviously, and you, do, you obviously do a great job. But what I love is this medium has opened so many like just opinions up to, like, for me to listen to people talk about other stuff. Dive in other things, which is probably like sports is probably at the center of a lot of that. Like, this is sports is at the center of you and me knowing each other, right? And having a conversation. But it just feels like I learned so much more about personalities of people just in this medium alone. I love it.
0: It, me too. And it's, it's so weird because I had a conversation. I finished a, a, an episode with Paula Ferris. Yeah. So Paula and I go back to when I was a sports anchor at Channel Five, sure. she was there too. And it's just so interesting to see like where her career went where she went from doing sports on Channel 5 and then being told, you can only do sports. You can't do news. And she's like, oh, I I can only do sports? Okay, well, let me go do ABC (laughs) World (laughs) News now. Let me become like a financial expert on ABC. (laughs) Let me then host Good Morning America and then The View. And it's just it's so great when I see people succeed outside of what people thought their limitations might be.
1: If you had to do something else... In conjunction with this, but it was outside of sports, do you think you could do something? Or do you have something that you'd, you'd chase passionately or no?
0: Yeah, for me, it's it's so strange because I kind of always thought that I would end up back in a classroom. Okay. So my parents are both teachers. Yeah. The, my my dad, 37 years in CPS. My mom, 35. So 72 combined years teaching. In the,
1: in the public school system.
0: Yeah. So it was kind of in the blood, and that's what I originally went to college for. I was a golden apple scholar and I was gonna teach. And then the thing, like I got the thing. And I I loved broadcasting in high school. I got an internship at what was back then WMAQ radio. Okay. Which ironically was 670 AM yeah. back then, working in the news department. What's really crazy is the the news director, the the program director back then was Weezy Kramer who's now in charge of all of intercom and her office is down the hall. (laughs) And so she, she was talking to me at a bulls game back in December. And I was saying like 25 years ago, like I was an intern for you. And she's like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but
1: (laughs) (laughs) well, it it flies. It flies. I didn't like, I was just saying about Danny and, and Mac and like how, what was it? 2007, summer of 07. So 13 years ago, Danny and I are, you know, passing each other in the newsroom and in the production studio at MVP trying to cut tape for, you know, he's doing Mac Yurko, and Harry, and I'm doing Game Night with Carmen and Sylvie and trying to just, you know, get all this sound together. And now, you know, he's hosting, I'm doing what I'm doing. It flies. It really does.
0: Was, was, Was there a flashpoint moment for you when you thought this is what you wanted to do for the rest of your life?
1: I think it was probably, like, When I first did it in college, like when I first got on air and called a game, I called a, like a college baseball game. It was Valpo. I went to Valpo, Valpo, Indiana state, nine, nothing Indiana state. I still remember that. I did the middle three innings and I did a bad imitation of my partner. My partner was the guy who got me to go to Valpo. He was from my hometown. His mom was my preschool teacher. And I basically went to Valpo to broadcast because he suggested it. And I was very impressionable. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll go. And then I finally got a chance to be on the radio, granted on a 40-watt student radio station. But I was on the radio and was completely nervous and didn't know what to do. And while I'm calling this game, I start doing a bad imitation of Ken Lavica, And the whole time I thought, I'm, I've never had more fun in my life. I am dreading every word that comes out of my mouth, and I've never had more fun doing
0: it. How great of a moment is that when the realization happens and you go, oh, it's like a whole new world here like I I didn't know that this was possible and now if I work hard and I get good at my craft it's absolutely possible
1: and I was and I'm a junkie for like crowd I was a big crowd junkie so in high school I played the violin I was in choir I acted in plays Uh, I was all state in theater all state in choir all state in violin and all this stuff I was really good at but I loved it because I was in front of people and you had to be good you had to execute and you do all this practicing and planning. And then when the moment comes, you have to be really good at it. And I love that. And I didn't realize I loved that. But it, once I went on the radio and felt it differently, it was the same feeling. I'm nervous. I don't. It didn't matter how many people were listening. Probably not very many at all. But I knew that feeling. And I found it in something that involves sports. It was different than just like this artistic avenue of acting or music or whatever it was and I love both those things and I enjoyed both of those things and I was good at all those things but I didn't feel like that that nostalgia that I had for sports growing up being a huge sports fan and then still having this performance aspect of it and feeling like I did all this practice I did all this preparation now it's time for me to go execute and it's not like music and it's not like acting where you have the script and you just have to execute the script that you've been practicing you have to make it up on the fly based on the actions of others rather than your own. So that that was kind of the the point for me where I was like, "Oh, this is this is familiar but it's different and I like this a lot." And it became that that's what it became for me.
0: What I love about play-by-play, I've always loved this about play-by-play. I feel like it's a very pure form of journalism. Tell me what you saw.
1: You're the and, first on the scene.
0: Yeah, you're you're there. You're explaining to the person and doing radio is great, like radio play-by-play. Oh, yeah. And it's it's so weird. I actually heard from some listeners over the last few weeks talking about Marquee and talking about you know how they're looking forward to listening to the games on the score because they already know that Pat is going to do an incredible job yeah. of painting the picture for them yeah. because they won't have it. There's a lot of responsibility that goes with being a play-by-play personality. Agreed. So how do you what's your jumping off point? How do you approach wanting to convey the game to the viewer or the listener?
1: It's, it's still kind of the basic, remember, the, the journalism basics, who, what, where, when. Not as much for me on the why, that's more so for my analyst, but those are the things that I'm focused on, right? When you're calling a game on the radio, I have to tell you who's doing what, and I have to tell you when, as in time and score, Inning, whatever it may be, and I have to tell you where they are, because if you have all those things, you can at least have a baseline of a picture in your head. And for me, and and I think a lot of people around my age, and 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 you are, you know, we're around the same age. I'm
0: way older than you.
1: I would still feel like you're going to fall into this category, though. Okay. Video games? Oh, absolutely Sega, Madden. I'm uh, an
0: NES guy.
1: NES guy, still same thing, going horizontally, right? Playing tech mobile. If I say near left side. You know what that means. If I say they're going right to left, here's a line drive pass to the near left side at the 35, you know where that is. If I say outside the numbers, you know further where that is. If I say it's a two-hand chest tie catch, you know further what it is. And if I say it's Tyreek Hill or Travis Kelsey, now you definitely know what is what's happening. And if I add at the end of it the burly tight end takes it for 17 yards and a first down, you're picturing a lot of these things, and these are the nuanced things that I take a lot that I take into consideration a lot when I do games. I just did my first um, NBA radio game of the season. So that was uh, last Saturday at Boston and Philly. And at this point, I've done it so many times that for the most part, there are little tweaks and nuances that you add as you keep doing the games in the lead-up, for me, in the lead-up to the NBA playoffs where I'm doing my biggest games on the radio. All these things are stacked on top of one another, but I've done it so long and I've done it so many times that I have all this kind of built as a foundation. And that's why I tell young broadcasters. There are a lot of broadcasters who are in their mid twenties to late twenties, maybe even to their mid thirties, that are good. They're consistent, but that's the key: is can you be so consistent that all of this extra nuance is muscle memory? Because when you show up nine months after you've called your last game, like I did, and I feel good for the first time in a long time, walking out and saying, "All right, that's that's passable at, at worst. That's passable, and maybe it, and and." We know we can do better, and we'll do better the next time out, and we'll do better than that the time after that. But to have it as a baseline, to know that I need to tell you what, who, where, when, and if I can give you a descriptor and an action and still maintain all of that consistency over a course of a a two-and-a-half-hour broadcast, I'm doing my job, and I'm still the first one reporting to exactly what's happening. And that means a lot to me. Is
0: it hard to flip between, because you've been doing some TV broadcasts, is it hard to flip your brain from... What you're doing in those broadcasts, what you might do in a radio broadcast.
1: Less so now. I think it's easier now. It's And it's just being aware of the medium itself. And I think that's part of that consistency and foundation. I know that, listen, I, I the last radio broadcast I did was, I think, week 17 NFL. And then I jumped back on for that radio game last week. So it had been, you know, weeks. You know, it's Citrus Bowl, January 1st. February 2nd. Those are the, that was a month in between, and there's a lot of TV broadcasts in between. And I jump on the radio, and I'm like, all right, I, I'm comfortable. I know how to do this now. I remember how to do this. And I, I it wasn't perfect, and it's not where I want it to be. It's not going to sound like Game 7 of the Western Finals when I do that or East Finals, whatever I end up doing. But it's a good baseline, and that's what I'm gunning for is that baseline. So as long as I have that, it's a lot easier now to go TV to radio, radio to TV
0: than it used to be. What I appreciate about your calls is the authenticity of it. It's clear when I listen to you, whether you're doing a Bulls game or you're doing women's college basketball is that you love sports. It comes across. It doesn't feel like a chore. And as weird as it may sound, the amount of work that goes into putting together play-by-play when you're putting together boards and you're interviewing people, there's a lot that goes in and you want to make sure you get all that stuff in. You still have a very genuine love for whatever it is you're calling. Where does that come from?
1: I think it's the fact that there's still a story behind all this. I, and, I, and I hate saying this, and I'm sure somebody might, somebody might hear this and think the wrong thing. And, and if they do, that's okay, because it doesn't sound like a great thing to say. I don't love... Sports as much as I used to, just sports in general. I don't sit at home and watch games constantly like I used to. I think part of it is just because it's the job. You know, you know like, how the
0: sausage is made. Yeah,
1: and I and I know what goes into it, and I know what I need to know. You know, uh, if I'm gonna, I've got Cincinnati, Memphis this week. I'm gonna watch Cincinnati on Sunday when they're playing UConn on CBS. I'm gonna watch Memphis' this game from Saturday, but it's not gonna be this like obsessive. I've got to watch every single game and have every single note from every broadcast I've seen. It's, it's, I think, untenable. I think it's unsustainable, especially when you're working a a heavy schedule. What I love is the storytelling aspect of it. And to do that properly, I do have to go back and watch the Sunday game and the Saturday game. And I do have to talk to John Brannon and and Penny Hardaway. And I do have to ask my analysts what they think. And I do have to... go through the beat writers last five stories to see what the team is doing. And I do have to go through the AP poll and the AP stories about this team season. And I do have to read the blue ribbon preview to make sure I know where they were to where they are now. And to me, that process is still enjoyable. And I don't know if, I hope it doesn't ever become tedious because that process is what makes the games worth it. When you can tell the right story in a four point game during a timeout, and say, Dexter Dennis was away from the team for four games, missed 12 days because he was having personal struggles, Greg Marshall was worried about him, and here he is in his fourth game back, and he drills a three to give Wichita State the lead with 16 seconds left. That's enjoyable to me. That expression of this person's background, story, uh, accomplishment, overcoming the adversity of whatever their personal struggle is, that's enjoyable to me. And... As long as that process is still enjoyable, I think the result will always be enjoyable. And I, I think that's where all that enthusiasm comes from. Plus, it's the adrenaline of a big moment. Like, we had a great game Thursday night. And having to, the ability to call Jaron Cumberland, drive into the rim with five seconds left, banking a shot in to tie the game with three seconds, and drawing a foul to give him the lead, that's awesome. That's fun. That's that's adrenaline That that is really hard to recreate unless you're playing the game itself and uh, I'm not an athlete. So for me that's where I get that adrenaline rush from.
0: When you're telling someone's story and you're you're making special a special point to tell someone's story on why this matters to the person who's viewing. Have people ever reached out to you to tell you that they appreciate it? Because I my experience doing DePaul games is a little bit different, but I did get to do the state championship Football games a yeah. couple years ago on television. I loved it. And I remember I was talking to some friends of mine that do play-by-play, and I was trying to, like, take from everywhere to figure out, like, what I wanted it to be like. I knew how to do a radio call. Sure. And I'm pretty sure I did a radio call on television, which I think is okay. That's fine. But one of the important things that someone said to me was, make sure you say everyone's name. Yeah. Because the parents, they they're recording this. That's what they're watching. They're, they're going to go back, and they're going to they want want you to know the story. So, you're at the professional level. You're doing stuff collegiately. Do any of those stories ever make it back to you?
1: Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of satisfaction comes. Especially, you know, when we've had big moments at the Final Four, I, and I get a Notre Dame fan. Saying, I didn't know that about the player that I've been watching all season long. You know, Ariko Gumbawale is a name that I'll remember for the rest of my life, and I'll be connected to her for the rest of my life because she gave me the greatest call, arguably, of my entire career to win a national championship at the buzzer. Was it two years ago? And to be able to tell the story about her parents and how her mom was an athlete and how uh, her name... uh, it has this Nigerian root to it. And to be able to talk about her background and say things about her brother who's still playing in the NFL and uh, remembering that I watched her in the McDonald's game, you know, however many years ago and kind of encompass all that and have people who have watched this girl play for three years at that point message me on Twitter and say, I didn't know that. I didn't know that about the player I've been watching to have, you know, to have the ability to tell a story about a UCLA softball player who's got a heart condition and tell that story on national TV and have her friend message me and say, you did a great job with that. And and to all of us, to all of us on our crew who were able to tell that story, that means a lot. And that's still, you know, as much as the games matter, that that's still probably the biggest reward is to have a great game and to not screw up the call to do the game justice. That is a major bonus when you're given the opportunity to tell a story and it sticks with somebody that that's what we're all trying to do at some point in our, whether it's our day to day day professional lives or, you know, week to week, whatever it is, I think we want to say something and have it have value to people. And when that happens, while it may not be the main goal of our broadcast, it's pretty nice when it does
0: end up happening like that. It's testament to your preparation, though. I mean, you have
1: to you have to dig. You have to dig for that. And you know, and and like I think Bob Costas said it in, in a book somewhere. I remember it. He like he uses like ten percent of all the of all the notes he comes in with, and that's that's good. If you're only using ten percent, maybe five percent of what you came in with, that means the game was really good. That means you didn't have to fill time, or there were too many great moments from the game itself for you to have to. You know, maybe you're denied the ability to add a little context, but you didn't need it because the game itself was so compelling and so gripping. That's what gave it that flavor, and that's what gave people the desire to watch the game itself. And then when you can add a little bit to it, to have it have a little bit more sentimental or emotional or human value, that's always a great bonus for it.
0: Who are the the play-by-play people that you felt like upped your game, that listening to them or watching them added something to what you do?
1: Mike Tirico. Mike uh, when I first started listening to the NBA Finals on radio, he was the one who was calling it. And he was a TV guy who had slid over to radio and still had it. And I knew it wasn't his comfort zone calling games on the radio. I know he knew how to do it, but he added so much. And and his enthusiasm during the games mattered to me. Kevin Calabro might be the greatest. I I think the two greatest radio play-by-play guys on basketball are Jim Durham and Kevin Calabro. And I think for completely opposite reasons. I think Jim was, his simplicity made it so easy to picture what was happening. Into O'Neal, low left, turns, right-hand hook, good. There's nothing overly complex about that, but I can picture Shaq making that move on the the box on the left er every time he says it. I can picture Dwayne Wade dipping at the knees and delivering a free throw to come back from down 13 points. I can picture that in my head because of how Jim called that. And obviously going back to his Bulls days, so it's you know, here's Michael at the foul line, a shot on Elo. You don't need a whole lot more. And his enthusiasm on the punch, good. And then he delivers the call after that to to seal the series. His simplicity compared to Kevin Calabro's poetic and kind of almost verbose style, where you know, he's got all these great sayings, Oh, good golly miss Molly on a magic carpet ride, he jams it in, punching it with two hands. Like just this kind of flowery text. Like it's almost poetry when you put it on a if if you were to take the transcript of it. So those are the two guys on basketball that I loved. Wayne Larravee taught me how to do football play by play on the radio. I think he's still maybe the the best, if not one of the three best to ever do it. And he's certainly, I think, the best in the NFL. Uh, you know, rainbows a pass down the far right sideline. Just to use a word like that, it sounds so much different. It's such a different picture. Throws it deep down the right side compared to rainbows it down the right sideline. Over the left shoulder catch at the 20 and he sprints to the end zone. That, like Just to have that level of detail was huge. And then on TV, it was Dan Shulman. He taught me how to be a point guard. You know, to He basically said, you need the first and the last. I need the top of the first inning. I need the bottom of the ninth. I need the first two possessions. I need the last minute of the game. Everything else, make sure the guy next to you is having a great game. And everything else will kind of fill in as long as you have the first and you have the last. That's being a great point guard on TV. That is setting up your analysts to be successful. That is paying attention to them. That's making them feel like the most important member of the broadcast, and that's also going to give them the respect for you. That's going to be reciprocated when you need the, the mic you know, in, in the biggest moment. Uh, and then Ian Eagle is the guy who taught me how to do the job and how to structure everything you do preparation-wise, how to bring in some of your personality on TV. There's a lot of guys. I'm just rattling off people at this point, but it's all those people have a significant level of – of impact,
0: That point guard part is difficult. It is. It's a hard thing because in a lot of ways, when you start out in the business and you're doing play by play, the play by play guy in a lot of situations is the star. There's there is that. So to humble yourself to play point and allow your your analyst to shine in those moments. When did you feel comfortable enough in your own skin to fall back and let this stuff happen.
1: I think I always wanted to be that way, but I didn't know I could weave in and out until maybe like five years ago, where I felt comfortable enough with what I was doing. Where I said, "Okay, I sound like me now. I sound like what I want to sound like. I have a feel for the rhythm of a basketball or a football game or a baseball game. To know I don't need to talk right now. Like I know it's I know the tempo is getting up a little bit." It's not. It's not going to go anywhere, and I also knew the moments like in a college basketball game and in an NBA game too. But there's more. It's more. It happens more often just because of the higher level of play. But in college basketball, you know the big moments. You know that if a guy makes a shot, the place is going to going to explode right now. So I. That's when I had that feel for a game. When I had that feel for in a, in a football game, uh, on which down and which distance really mattered in terms of the time and score. Then I was like, you know what, I don't have to say anything. I don't have to inject my opinion. I don't need, I'd rather make the person next to me feel like they're making a significant contribution more consistently. And then I know when the big moment comes, because I can feel it now, I have a good sense of what where this game is going. I don't have to jump the gun in the third quarter. I know it's going to be the, I know there's something coming in the fourth. I know there's something coming, at, you know, inside of eight minutes rather than inside of twelve. I can wait four more minutes of game time before I really punch this story home. Or, you know, like it's stuff like that. Having a better feel for the structure, the timing, and the cadence and rhythm of a game. And that really only settled in maybe five years ago. And it's a constant process to try to learn. And, and you can't always predict it, but you can have as good of a feel for it as possible. And that will help you make sure the person next to you is getting their swings in at the right times.
0: Who are the analysts that bring out the best in you?
1: Doris Burke. Uh, since I started working with her on the NBA, I'm working with her this Thursday on a college game. Uh, she wants to make you a star too. Uh, Carol Lawson, same deal, uh, and Rebecca Lobo, the two women I was lucky enough to work with on the Final Four, and obviously, you know, Kara's doing great things with the Celtics now. Um, Dusty Dvorak, former Bear, you know, he and I were so close; we just became so tight as friends that that clearly came out on air for us
0: when we worked college football together. It's so weird to see him now. Like right? as someone who covered him every day. <laughs> With his long,
1: We had the long stringy yeah. hair. He was a
0: big, big dude. He was a wild man. He was. To see him as buttoned up <laughs> as he is now and like respected analysts. Like it's yes. really strange for me. Like every time I see you two together, <laughs> I, I think back to being in those Bears locker rooms like, wow. The wild man is out here doing it.
1: Yeah, and and he's he's so careful. Like he wants to do such a good job. Like he takes very good care of each broadcast. And I think those are the people I get along with a lot. Those are the people that I think bring the best out in in most play by play guys. Uh, I love working with Rick Sutcliffe because it's he gives you the room to. Not take it so seriously, too. As and he brings in so much preparation. He's so good. He knows the league so well. Yet, it, I, it's a party every time we, we go on the air together. So I think different parts of my personality are enhanced by those people. And I, and I'm I know I'm leaving people out. I know for a fact I'm leaving people out. But just gut gut reaction. First time you ask the question, that's who I was thinking of.
0: Covering women's college basketball is. Really interesting because for a long time, they wanted anyone to cover their sport. And then still on the local level, I remember just a few weeks ago, I was talking about how Northwestern and DePaul are both ranked in the top 25. That's a big deal that both of them are ranked. But there's also a lot of care that has to be taken when someone steps into the arena of women's college basketball because there are some people who feel like, well, you're just using this. As a stair step to get to men's college basketball or the NBA. You seem to take the responsibility very seriously. How did that develop?
1: I think seeing how the people who are already established took care of it. And I realized I better I better be at that level. Because if I'm not, I'm going to get run out of here. And not necessarily I'm going to get removed out of the job. But nobody's going to take what I say seriously. They're gonna have those thoughts where it's like, oh, this guy doesn't care. He's just he's just here, like he's begrudgingly here. For me, that wasn't the case. And I think Kara, Rebecca, Holly Rowe, the three people I worked with when I first started doing women's games uh at this level, doing the final on the Final Four crew, I knew how much care they put into it. And they'd been doing it for years. They'd all been on it for years in some capacity. And we had the opportunity to do something different, to be a fresh crew together but they already had this background established. So I wanted to make sure I had the history down. I had the understanding of what this sport meant. I wanted to make sure I knew what UConn was because at that point, UConn was still, you know, and and I guess in many ways still is, but that was the the team. You have to know what the 16 team looked like compared to the 15, compared to the 14, compared to the 13 team. You have to know the history of all these programs, especially when you're going to show up in – Columbus or Tampa or this year, in New Orleans for the final four. And you're going to need to be able to bring out one extra nugget. And that's a whole year of doing preparation just for maybe one note in the biggest game to have some context and weave in the history of that. So seeing how they treated it, I knew that's how I wanted to treat it with the care and respect that they have for these athletes. And I think that's the other thing about covering women's sports. Cause I've done the women's college world series for five years. I, I, to me, it was just good games. It was big events. So if it's a big event, I want to do a good job on it. Regardless, it didn't really matter at that point that that, that it that it was a, a, it was women's sports. I don't think it really mattered at that point, especially in college. Like we covered volleyball. I I played volleyball and I knew how hard the sport was. So when I started covering women's volleyball, I was just like, all right, this is the sport I like. I like playing this. I, this is my niche sport that I enjoy. I'm gonna make sure I cover it well. So it never really. I never really felt any type of difference. I just, and that, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I like the job, I like the process, I like the storytelling aspect of it. And it's no, there's really no difference, I hope, in how I cover a men's game compared to a women's game other than just knowing the different nuances of the sports.
0: Growing up, how did your family feel about you wanting to pursue sports? It was weird at first. And so my, so my
1: parents uh, are Pakistani. I was the first one born in the States. I have three older brothers, large gap, nine years older, thirteen years older, seventeen years older. So they were they had a, a much deeper understanding of what life was like in Pakistan compared to life in America. And I think it was almost ingrained in them a little bit deeper that like, hey, like you got you got like a short list, <laughs> you know, like as a as a as a brown person, you know, the the stereotype is and it's not a bad stereotype doctor, by the way. lawyer engineer. Doctor lawyer engineer. <laughs> DLE, man. It's not a, I'm not saying that's a bad stereotype, but that was a stereotype. <laughs> Doctor, lawyer, engineer.
0: I got to tell you, man, I've had beautiful conversations with beautiful brown people like yourself, Sahadev Sharma, Layla Rahimi. Two of my they, favorite people, yeah. And they tell the same story. Yeah. So, how do you get out of yeah.
1: that? So, I think. Jumping it like I, I wanted to play the violin, so I started doing that when I was eight. So already I have this like creative part of my brain that I really like tapping into. And I was a very good student in elementary school, junior high, high school. So a very good student, and I got all the gr- you know the right grades and all that. So I think there was a little lack of pressure there. But my three older brothers had very distinct personalities. They were all a little rebellious in their own ways. And I think that kind of distracted my parents a little bit. And because I was doing well, I kind of had carte blanche in a lot of ways to maybe explore other things. So I did play sports. I played baseball, football, basketball, volleyball. I did pursue music. When I got to high school, I did decide, hey, I want to step away from playing some sports. I'd rather go act on stage and go sing and do all these things that I kind of enjoyed a little bit in that creative part of my brain. Hmm. So once you get a taste of that, you're like, well, I guess I, I'm good at all this. And I was good at all these things. I don't, I don't know if I was great at any of them, but I was good at all these things. And I thought, all right, maybe I can go pursue this if I wanted to. Maybe I could be a singer if I wanted to, like be a, go perform in an opera. Or maybe I could play the violin. Or maybe I could try to be an actor or something like that. Then I go to college. Like I said, I had no idea what I really wanted to do. I was a jack of all trades, but master of none. I get a friend who says, hey, why don't you try radio broadcasting? Because I had messed around with it a little bit in high school. He was like, hey, you might enjoy this. So I go to Valpo. I start acting and I start radio. And I'm doing both. And also drinking heavily and not going to class. which is sure. Which was the first, again, that was the first time I really had to go to to not have these, like, constraints. And I decided, all right, I want to pursue these things and I want to go have a good time. And at the end of all of it, I, I was like, I can't. I got to do better in school. I have to focus. And I can't do both of these activities that I really like. What do I want to focus on? And I decided because of what we talked about, I was on air and I liked it and it kind of caught me. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to try to pursue this. And it never occurred to me ever again to be like, well, should I go into business? Should I go into med school? None of that occurred to me because I didn't know what I wanted, but I knew I didn't necessarily have to stick with whatever that path that was already laid down the doctor lawyer engineer path i knew i didn't necessarily have to do that because i was good at other stuff and my mom wasn't very happy about that she would she would tell people that i uh i had my first full-time job out of college in a small town in iowa as a sports director at a small radio station KUOO in spirit lake iowa i come back in december for uh like a holiday break and my mom says, "Hey, dad's sick? Can you can you take me to this wedding?" And I'm like, "Yeah, sure, I'll go. I'll take you to this wedding." So I go to this banquet hall, and right before we walk into the wedding, my mom goes, "Hey, I may have told some of my friends that you are going to med school. No. So if anybody asks, just you may have to go along with it." And I was like, "Really? This is what I came back home for? Like, I I agreed to take you to this. You know, I was, wow. I was happy to do that. But now, so now I've got." I've got, like, friends of my mother, like, coming up to me and saying, I haven't seen you in years. How are you doing? How's med school going? And whatever ology I could think of, like, to BS my way through, <laughs> I must have said, like, seven different med- medicinal disciplines to different people.
0: That's so great.
1: And all these mothers are like, oh, if you're in med school, I have a daughter that, by the way, you might you might want to meet. So that was always funny, too. But uh I, I, she she didn't resent it. She wasn't, like, upset about it, but she was very skeptical about it. My brothers who already who knew me as the smart kid, and they were all kind of, you know, like I said, they had rebellious streaks and they had some mistakes in their lives, and I think they were under the expectation that I was not going to do that. I was not going to make a dumb mistake. I was going to go into a respected profession, quote-unquote, and make a, make a good living and, and have, like, a normal life. And I just didn't want to do it. And they were very skeptical, supportive, but skeptical. And my dad was the one guy who was like, listen, if you're going to do it, just do it. Do not half-ass it. It, You better go all out. It's very competitive. It would have been competitive in just about anything you did, but this is really competitive. You better work your ass off. And you better outwork anybody that, that comes. And my dad had the greatest work ethic of any human. If I have any good stuff from him, good trade, I hope it's that. And I think it may be that. He was the hardest working person I knew. To the day he died, he was still working. So he was as supportive as anybody. And I think that continued to give me a little bit of leeway where it's like, all right, I know it's not easy. I know it's a $12,000 a year job in Iowa. I know it's a seasonal gig in New Jersey doing minor league baseball and no benefits. And you got to come home and piecemeal the winter time together. But I think I can pull this off. And sure enough, somehow I was able to
0: pull it off. Do you think that your view of the American experience is different than your brother's? I think so. I think so.
1: I, Especially my two oldest brothers, because they were in their formative years in Pakistan. So my oldest came to the U.S. I think he was 16, and I think there were 16, 12, and like 8 when they came to the United States, and then I was born a year later. So especially the two older ones that kind of already had an understanding of what life was like in a homogenous society in it, where they're the majority, and then they come here and get made fun of and get insulted and i think that kind of shifted their folk like their their view of this a little bit and then for the youngest of those three he was still like 8 9 years old and he acclimated to american society a little bit faster it's kind of funny you can almost hear the accents change if you hear all four of us speak like my oldest brother has a more a more heavy it's not i don't think any of us have a heavy accent i certainly don't at all but you can tell that That's he has a different background you can tell that there's a little bit of a twinge of a different background and then it, and it dissipates as you get to the younger of us so i think they do did have and maybe still do have a very different viewpoint of what life is supposed to be like and for me and i and my again my dad was super patriotic like loved being here like he, the proudest day for him was probably when he got his citizenship in like mm. the early 90s he was so happy uh, he had an American. <laughs> we saw this little American flag on the fence post outside of our, you know, outside of my parents' house. And he was just so proud of of being a Pakistani American. I think he took a lot of pride in the fact that I was born here and had success while he was still alive. So I do think we had different viewpoints. And for me, I had enough of an idea of what they had gone through to know that I have to be weary a little bit at times, a little bit wary of just how people how you tr- how you view people, how you treat people. I uh, in you know, blessed enough to have a great job and a great life to where I can afford to go to places and travel. And I go to Italy and I go to Europe and I go to Spain and and I don't speak the language and I'm a minority there now again, even though I, I'm a minority here, too. But I don't feel like it. You know, I feel accepted. I feel like part of the fabric of this country. You go and don't speak the language somewhere else and you forget, like, it's really hard for people when they don't have an understanding of what life in a different place is like. I can't imagine what life was like for my mother, you know, like when she first got to the States. And and even in those first seven, eight years before I was even aware that, hey, we're we're quote-unquote different. I don't know different is the wrong word, but, hey, we're not from here. Our family's not from here. So I, I don't think I really had an understanding of that until I got older, but I do I, – I take that seriously, and I try to implement that in how I – talk to other people and how I approach other people and how I get introduced to other people. I don't want to be presumptive about people because I feel like a lot of people were presumptive about my three brothers and my parents. And I don't want to be I don't, I don't want to put that on somebody else, too.
0: How important do you think representation is like you being someone as a, a Pakistani American with a pretty high profile? Was there anyone like you? Growing up,
1: I, I still tell Kevin Ngani to this day that I owe him a lot. Like, I, I don't I, I don't think he, maybe he does, but I, I, I tell him, I don't know if you'll ever understand the impact that you had. Just for me to be a college kid and turn on ESPN and see a guy who had a similar skin tone. Uh, Ravi Bachewell here. My father loved Ravi Bachewell when he was on ABC. Because it's like, hey, hey, Ravi's on. Because it was just somebody who kind of looked like us, even though he may, you know, he was, I think he was Canadian, Indian-Canadian, if I'm not mistaken, and we're you know, Pakistani-Americans. Like, doesn't matter. It was just somebody who kind of looked like us that comes from a similar background that had the doctor-lawyer-engineer thing uh, kind of saddling them a little bit and decided, no, I want to be a journalist or I want to be on TV or whatever it may be. I don't think I really understood the impact of that until I got to this point and I had other brown guys messaging me and saying you're doing this for us i posted a photo from the yeah. national championship of me kevin and uh omar uh from Hasa highlights who's now working at espn he's running you know the sports center digital stuff the social stuff and we just took a photo together and i had like people in my dms go like sending me like pakistani flag emojis and stuff like that and i just thought that was so cool because i didn't have anybody like that until i did and I don't know if anybody had. I don't know if people had somebody like us, like me and Anish Shroff and Nagandi and Adnan Verk and Dari Noka and Zubin Mahenti and like guys who looked a little bit like us who we hadn't seen before on TV, and we're like, hey, that's. It's not the most impactful thing for me because I just wanted to do a good job calling play by play but i bet somebody else was thinking I, I would never have that opportunity until they saw somebody that looked like them actually have that chance to do it on tv i think it's huge that's that's maybe the thing that i that has surprised me the most in terms of impact and i'm not trying to build myself up i promise you i'm not trying to like may you know sound narcissistic or anything like that i but this is serious man this is important i didn't and i didn't know how important it was until it was important and now i realize how big of an impact i think people who look like you, who look like me, who look like Layla, who look like Sahadev, who have cool jobs. Just that's all it has to be. It's a cool job. It's a fun job. It's a somewhat high-profile job. I didn't realize how much impact it would have until it had impact.
0: I have conversations with Michael Kim a lot about some of this stuff, and it wasn't until I got the chance to work with Michael Kim that I really gained an appreciation for what – other minority groups yeah. were going through. I'm used to looking through the world through a black and white lens. Sure. I grew up on the South side of Chicago. Totally fair. It it made sense. And I have some experience with the Latinx community from being at DePaul. But in our business, there seemed to be a blind spot. And I, I hold myself guilty of this too. A blind spot when you're talking about people from Korea, Japan, Iraq, Iran, sure. Pakistan, India. I and and Michael opened my eyes to it because he brought up. He said, "You know, we never get brought up in the conversation when we're talking about people of color." And I'm like, "You're right. Like, there in in a lot of people's minds, people of color are black and Latin Latinx. Like, yeah. That's it. So, we did an interview." with the the hockey Punjabi guys in Canada. (laughs) Hanarayan Singh and and Randeep Jada. Like, they're just incredible dudes. And getting a real sense for what they, like, culturally, what they were bringing in the the large population in Canada and how they were bringing this purely Canadian game to the Punjabi people. Yeah. I was like, this is amazing. This is spectacular. And... I I imagine I I wonder what it's like to kind of be in invisible minority status in America.
1: I don't, and again, part of it is is I'm I'm, I'm oblivious to, and I'm okay with that. And I and I do I I don't again want to make it sound bad, like I'm trying to ignore any of this stuff. But when you're so obsessed with just trying to get to a certain point and trying to be good at what you do to the point where people are like, have respect for what you do, you don't want that to necessarily be a part of it. I never wanted to make my ethnic background, religious background, I never wanted any of that to be at the forefront. And I don't think that's a bad thing for me. For somebody else, it may it may be more important for that to be at the forefront of what they do. And I'm okay with that, too. Just for me, for my personal journey, I just wanted to be really good at this particular job. And plus, I'm not... I'm not as front facing as somebody like an Adnan Verk or a Michael Kim where their face is on camera constantly when they're doing their jobs. We're on camera for, you know, a couple minutes a game at most. I just wanted to sound like I knew what I was doing. And then if people realize, wow, you're oh, this guy looks like me. Or this guy, oh, this guy's from his parents are from Asia. Like that's that's where I where what what was cool to me. I don't think that's right or wrong. I just think that's how my personal journey went. So I never wanted it to be at the forefront, but I was happy to know that people who pursue jobs in this industry, who pursue front-facing jobs, are looked at as kind of beacons for what mm. is possible for a lot of these people. I'm thinking about a couple nights ago, Bong Joon-ho is on stage winning the Oscar for Best Director. Parasite, a foreign language film, which, which I, I was blown away by, on the edge of my seat. For the final 90 minutes of that two-hour film. Because maybe it was subtitled. And I was locked in. And I was reading and absorbing all of it. Maybe I didn't. I never even thought that that, uh, that a film like that would have impact on me. Because I couldn't understand the language. But it was subtitled. And I'm reading it. And I'm going, oh my god. I know exactly what's happening. What's going to happen next? And this guy is standing on stage. Overjoyed about this. And I have Korean friends of mine. Who are freaking out on Twitter. And I'm like. I get it. I get why you are so happy, because something that is seemingly so out of reach, and not by any purposeful measure, I don't think. I, be- I want to believe. I'm sure there's something systemic to this. I'm sure there is some bi- there is a significant bias in a lot of these things. But I want to believe that it's just out of reach because nobody's ever tried to bring it within their grasp before hey, white people win this all the time. But it's not necessarily just because this was a white thing. But it's nice to see that somebody who's not white is able to accomplish something like this. Not because I'm trying to deny what white people have done or anything. I'm not even trying to, I'm not even thinking on that plane. I'm just thinking how cool is it to feel like you're part of the fabric of something through the lens of somebody that looks like you or had the same background as you or, or grew up in the same religion as you or grew up with a similar circumstance, or or the same language in your house as you did. And now this guy's winning maybe the most prestigious award in his field that is and publicly just seen. And kept collecting them, and too. And kept bringing them in and racking them up. Like, that's a big deal just to see that. I'm not trying to make this into a divisive thing. It's not meant to be a divisive thing. It's meant to be more inclusive. So... Seeing me on TV or seeing Adnan or seeing Kevin or seeing a niche on TV isn't meant to say, well, hey, white people, y'all need to sit down. That's not what this is about. It's not meant to say, hey, black people, you need to wait your turn because you got other. That's not what this is about. Same thing with Latinx people. Same thing with South Asian people or other Southeast uh, Southeast Asian people. It's not about that. It's trying to show, hey, it doesn't really matter. We can all kind of do this if you're good at it. And. I know I, I'm, this is a pie-in-the-sky, more I, I, idyllic way to look at it. Not everybody feels that way, but I think that's a good ideal to chase where we're not worried about what we look like or whatever it is, just we want to do a good job, but we also want to make sure we feel like all of us have a chance. That's what it, what it's about. That's what Bong Joon-ho winning a, winning an Oscar is like. That's what seeing Layla Rahimi on TV is like. That's what seeing Bamani Jones do what he does or Pablo Torre do what, what he does or Mina Kimes do what she does on TV is like. It's just being like, oh, we all got a shot to do it. So don't feel like you have to be shackled by whatever somebody else puts on you, what your ethnic background, what your religious background
0: puts on you. I can hear, I don't even know your father, I didn't know your father, I can hear his voice in you talking about this. That's that's his patriotism, his love for America, and the opportunities that are afforded to us by being American that's it shining through you in that moment 1937
1: he was uh he was born um and 40 years almost 40 years exactly he spent in pakistan and then moved to the states on a, on his own with his brother but uh without his wife and kids so i you know here's the timeline so uh married when he was 30 had kids within a couple of years within a year i think of marrying my mom and has three kids, 78, winter of 78 comes to the States. Him and his brother, they leave, their wives and a combined five kids back in Pakistan. The way my dad told it to me was he had enough money. Oh, my dad was a vice president of a bank in Karachi. So successful, well off. My mom was younger, poor, beautiful, but it was a good arranged marriage. He had enough money to to bring three of the four, so you could bring two of the kids and the wife. All three kids leave the wife. None of those combinations worked because you can't. He's got to work in the factory. He he went from a high paying blue uh, white collar job to a blue collar factory job in Chicago, molding and shaping windows for high rises, Mm. and had to do it on his own. So he had to save all as much money as he possibly could to get everybody over here comfortably living in a in a I think within a year of them all moving here they he was able to purchase a home which is a big deal to him I know too and then I was born but 7 years without wife three kid or any of the three kids and he left when the three kids were really young so imagine being you know an infant you don't know your dad for the first like 6 7 years of your life that's nuts and i always try to take that into consideration when i think uh like if i have arguments or like if I'm upset with my brothers, I always try to remember, like, listen, man, they, they, they have a much different way of looking at life than you do. Like you said, do you think they have a different viewpoint? I absolutely do because they were raised much differently. They were raised with my mother. So seven years go by, very little communication, letter a, or two a year. You're not making collect calls because that, that costs money, and you're trying to save every cent possible because every cent you save is a second faster they're here. So finally, 85 all of them come to this come to the states within 4 months of me being in the state of them being in the states I was conceived which my brother's joke was they were making up for a significant <laughs> level of lost time <laughs> you know, significant amount of lost time so that's a fun realization to be to basically have your brother be like yeah mom and dad had a lot of sex because they hadn't seen each other in a long time and i was born in december of 86 like i said first one in the states and to have this kind of development for his 40 years in the U.S., like I still take – I am try to be, not think about this job very often in like grandiose terms because that – then I feel like I'm being egotistical about it. I feel like I'm building it up to more than it is. But you know what? If I look at it in the prism of my family, I am – I beam with pride. I could not be prouder of being who I am because of him, because of my dad. So – my biggest moment was to be able to have, or not moment, I guess just the, the greatest joy I had was to have him see that all this work that he put in for the first 40 years of his life and then for the next 25 years of his life, split in completely different places, he was able to see the development and the 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 reward of all the effort that he put in. And he got to see me succeed in something that I wanted to do that I would probably would not have had the chance to do or wouldn't have thought about ever doing if I was born and raised in Pakistan or if I had a different set of circumstances or if I was raised a little bit differently or if I wasn't given the freedom that I was given. I would never have had – I I think I would have had a good life. I would have had a good job. I was a smart guy. I think I would have figured something out. And I learned from my brother's mistakes and my parents' mistakes. I think I would have done okay. But it wouldn't have been like this. Wouldn't have been doing this job that brings me joy and happiness and is something that I know I built myself in terms of the professional aspect of it. But it would never, the foundation never would have been laid had it not been for all this work that they put in beforehand. And then he passed when he was 80, so 40 and 40, 80 years old, passed uh, March of 2018, March 5th. And we had texted a couple days before. We had texted the day that he died. And I was upset, you know. Obviously, like I, I was. Why am I here? I was in Connecticut calling a conference tournament, and I was calling two games. My brother called me, and I knew something was wrong because he always knows I'm on TV. He knows what they. My brother watches all the time, and I'm like, there's something wrong. So I had this gut, you know, nervous feeling in my gut. I called him afterwards. Goes, Dad had a heart attack. I'm sitting there going, like, shoot, should I? I gotta go, right? I gotta go, and I tell my producer. And I'm like, should I, should I go? Like, he's like, yeah, you got to go, man. Like, this is too important. Don't worry about this stuff. And I just collapsed into his chest and I started crying. And everybody around me was so great. They're like, hey, we're going to get you a car to Boston. There's a 5 a.m. flight. That's the first flight out. Eat. It's earlier than what you're going to get out of Connecticut. We'll get you a car service. Just pack your stuff. We'll take care of it. And they booked everything for me. And I was like, this, this is, first off, that's the humanity of people. On the drive from Connecticut to Boston, uh, my brother called me again. I'd been in contact with him the whole time, you know, just checking up. Hey, status, what's going on? He had called me at one point, and he interrupted the call. He said, hey, doctor's coming in. I got to go. So it just an abrupt end of the phone call. And he called me back maybe like 15 minutes later, and he's like, he's gone. And I lost it. Don was my driver in the, in the, in the car. And Don and I had met an hour earlier, and Don reached his hand back and is holding my hand while I'm just wailing away in the backseat. Again, more of the humanity that that you're taught to look for in people. And it was awful, and it was terrible. And then I got home, and the first thing my brothers told me was, like, you you realize you were the rock star, right? Like, you were his rock star. He was so proud of you. And I struggled through the funeral, and I struggled for you know, very at various points over the next several months. And then I was just at peace because I there was nothing that I felt like I had to say to him. There was nothing I felt like I needed to do for him. There was nothing I felt like he didn't give me in terms of lessons. And I'm sure there's plenty of stuff, especially about being a dad, that I'm going to miss out on that I never got from him. But there was so much foundation built. I was completely at peace. And I've been at peace ever since. And it's never... I, I there are days where I've, I'm, I wish he were here. I'd love to call him. Hey, did you see the game? Hey, we, what a game that was. Hey, I, I've got this. Uh, you know, I, I, hey, I'm gonna get to do a Bulls game on TV. Like that's a big deal. I would have loved to be able to call him and say that. But I'm. I have nothing. I have no regrets with how our relationship abruptly ended because there was there was no knowledge that wasn't already uh... felt and known
0: and processed i was very much at peace after a little while your dad made chicago it was a point to 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 be here to to be a part of this city yeah. this area the fabric of it what do you think he would think of you calling bulls games <laughs>
1: He would, he would get a hoot. It'd be a hoot to him. Maybe He'd get a huge kick out of it. He'd be complaining and and moaning and moan like everybody else does about you know he wishes the team were better and all that and why isn't Zach Levine an all star and I'm sure he'd be saying the same things. But I I think he he would be blown away even more so than than he already was. Like this this would have been like the icing on whatever cake we had already we had already given him. You know. I I just I just feel like he would he would just shake his head and go I can't believe this and i think that's the greatest like i said that's the greatest joy i've i've had in my life is to know that whatever i've done and it's an, and by the way it's another motivation to not screw it up you know that's also that's also very important to me to not blow this opportunity that i've been given i'm not i haven't arrived like that's not what it's about like it's about getting better and going through the process and trying to be the best version of yourself that you can be and part of that is uplifting the people around you and trying to make, you know, the people around you better and give chances to to other people to shine in 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 their own right too. Cuz he gave me that. All of that is foundational from his teaching and the way he raised me and the way he kind of instilled all these lessons in me. It's about the sacrifice that he made to make me better. And while Right now, I'm still in a very selfish mode in my life where I'm trying to be better on my own and try to take care of myself and try to establish myself and all that stuff. When I interact and when I work with or when I'm around other people, I still want them to shine as much as possible because I was given that from him. So that's, that's still very important to me. So I think everything that I'm doing now, it's all, the, the, the last eight years of my life has just been icing on the cake. I think. I think the the day I called him and told him I got hired at ESPN and I had a job at a high level, something I'd been working towards, I think that was enough. That was the cake when I called him July 2nd of 2011 at like 3 in the afternoon and told him, he, I got hired. You're going to be able to watch your son on TV. Mm. And his response was, so what? <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? He goes... I was like, are you kidding me? Like, come on, man. Like, I need something from me. And, and, and he was like, this is what I expected. This is what was supposed to happen. And then it was, you have no idea how proud of you I am. And, and this, is, this is what you, you worked you worked very hard for this. You should be very proud of yourself. That was the cake. Everything else since, as long as I don't screw it up, I
0: feel like I'm, I'm doing doing all that justice. What's the Bulls experience been like for you? You're a kid who grows up here. You're calling Bulls games. Yeah, it's unreal. It's unreal. Like, to see the uniform and to call
1: moments for, and, and it's not just the players. Because I, I called NBA games before I, uh, you know, nationally, before I even ever called the Bulls uh, any Bulls games. I called, I, called play, I called LeBron James playoff games. I called buzzer beaters from LeBron before I ever called the Bulls game. So it wasn't necessarily about being able to call the league. It was that team. It was the Bulls. First game I recalled for ESPN was at the United Center. It was Thibodeau's comeback when Minnesota played Chicago and they were down twenty one and they came all the way back and won. But my first game I recalled in an NBA for uh, first NBA game I recall was at the United Center. So already I was a little like thrown back by that. But now to do it for your hometown, to do it next to Stacy, that was that was different. To have to sit in Neil's chair, and it's still very much Neil's chair. But to have the opportunity to keep that chair warm for a little bit and to call something that you enjoy with somebody you grew up watching and to have him say the catchphrase when you call a dunk or a three-pointer and to have him say that stuff because of something you just triggered, that's, that was different. And to have fans of the team feel the same way you did. And I didn't really understand what that was like. And I've called Bears preseason, and I love it. But it's, this is regular season games. These are meaningful games. So when you're calling games for a team that you have a vested interest in, in a regular season game that matters in some capacity, that's different. You feel it. You feel that investment. You think it's okay. I I don't mind saying Zach instead of Levine, which I would only say Levine on an ESPN game. I would only say Carter, but now I can say Wendell or Zach or sat or sato or whatever like and i know that may not seem like a lot to a lot of people and nor should it but to me that means a lot and just to have that little bit of a tweak it and, and feel like you have investment in it like that's a big deal
0: i enjoy your calls man i appreciate you man you you kick ass and every time <laughs> i hear you i'm just like man this this kid's got it together man <laughs> he, he's absolutely got it together I thank you for being so generous with your time. Oh my
1: God. Thank you for letting me, letting me chat about this stuff.
0: This Are you kidding great. me? It's
1: like a great therapy session.
0: Uh, maybe that's what I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll do with the, the pod at some point, make it therapy. But like, there's a lot of good lessons, I think, to learn from what you're talking about, both professionally and personally. So I, I thank you wholeheartedly for this, man. And I appreciate you, brother. You're the man. Thank you're you. You're the man. You're the best. Did I tell the truth or what? How great of an episode is that? I loved talking with Adam about everything, especially him getting the chance to call Bulls games, man. Everyone that has called Bulls games over the last two years as Neil kind of winds down in his play-by-play duties has done a great job. Lisa Byington has done a great job. Mark Shanowski getting an opportunity to do this is incredible. And if you want... You can go back. I think Mark was like episode four or five of the podcast, and we actually talked about him doing play-by-play, how he had been in the business for 30 years, and that was his dream, and now he has the opportunity to do it. So getting a chance to talk with Adam about how important and special that is for him was just terrific. Hearing about his family, his approach to doing the job because of how he was raised and his feelings about America, man, it's just super powerful stuff. The guy is as good as it gets in our business. And I am uh, honored to call him friend. And I'm glad that you got a chance to, to hear what he's all about. And I know the, the Valpo crusaders, all of shout out to my man, Bob Petrowski. I forgot to, to give him props during the interview, but my man, Bob, knows Adam from Valpo, and now Bob works at the University of Chicago. I see him every morning, and he's like, when are you getting Adam Amin on the podcast? I've been telling him that he needs to be on House of L. Well, Bob, we got him, and I know that you enjoyed that, and I, I'm glad that uh, that he had time to to make that all happen. Really, really good cat, man. Let me get to an email. Oh, Okay. House of podcast at gmail.com. If you would like to email the podcast, it's house of L podcast at gmail.com. This from JD JD says, Lawrence, I have a bit of an outside suggestion for you. I think it'd be cool if you could get Kathy Kelly, who currently works as an interviewer for WWE. She's primarily a part of the NXT brand, which appears to be the best wrestling you'll find in this country on a week to week basis. Her background is in TV and radio and there's a Chicago connection too. She's from Oak Park. Oh, and she's apparently a Mensa member. Well, that means she's too smart for me. JD, I can't be interviewing Mensa members? Keep up the great work. I love all your shows, but House of Bell is my absolute favorite. Apparently, it's Adam Amin's favorite too, which is great. That Look, I'm always looking for good and interesting people to talk to on the podcast, so I will do some digging. You know what? I actually think what, what I am going to do is I did an interview with Cody Rhodes. And it was it was a score interview, but it was House of L style. I think I might release that on House of L because it's not as if I'm going to play it again necessarily on the score. But I think that there are a lot of wrestling fans who maybe didn't get a chance to hear it on the score that might enjoy hearing it on House of L. But I appreciate the the suggestion. I'm all for the suggestion, so thank you very much. Man, I'm telling you, here's the crazy part. So before I did the Adam interview, like the morning before I talked with Adam, I talked with Paula Ferris, which will be the next episode of House of L. And I'm here to tell you that that episode is going to be bonkers. I'm still... We did a Zoom, so there's still a couple of bugs that I'm taking out from it. And this one was a little easier to edit. And plus, it was tremendous, so I put it out first. But I'm telling you, man, the Paula Ferris episode is going to be dope. Because I found out something about her that I had no idea. I mean, I had an idea, but I, to hear it put into words, I was like, for real? And she's like, for real? So that is next week. And that is all I got. I thank you so much for your support. Do me a favor. Can you do me this favor and write a one sentence review? Like, if you're listening right now, just do one sentence on whatever platform you get your podcast on and give me five stars because it helps with the placement, especially with Apple. It helps with how many people get a chance to see it. It's a weird rubric, but it's a rubric that we have to use. So, one sentence added to the other 990 reviews or whatever it is, and, and I thank you kindly for that. Thanks for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed delivering it. Thanks again to Adam Amin for just being dope. I'll see you next week with the Paula Ferris episode. It's going to be bonkers. Peace.